Welcome to episode 107 of The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian here. Danny out there? I am, Brian. How are you doing today? All right. What about you? How's your December? Good. Getting colder. Days are getting shorter. Uh, pretty much finished my Christmas shopping. Did a big spurt of it in the past two days. But yeah. Yeah, I got to get on that. I just wrapped up coursework for my graduate school program. I made a documentary that I just finished editing. Yeah, I saw it. It was real good. You could post it on the Discord, which our listeners can join at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. I will. It's timely. It's about Christmas decorations. And as always, we're here with a movie to talk about. Well, sort of a movie. But if you have any qualms about whether it counts as a movie, we have two of them. So hopefully that will calm any qualms <laughs> we've done shorts before yeah and honestly both of them cracked 50 minutes and i think you either see 40 or 45 minutes as the two borders for feature length like the difference between fil short film and feature length so i would say these qualify yes so there are hour length tv films but they're from pbs which means no commercials so whereas on a network you know you'd have 45 or 46 minutes or something like flintstones christmas carol here it goes the full hour and that's because these are christmas eve on sesame street from 1978 and elmo saves christmas from 18 years later in 1996 dan did you have any familiarity with these going in yeah, last year I watched the first half of Elmo Saves Christmas with my kids. And sometimes, you know, we'll we'll start something like a half hour before bedtime. And then usually we pick it back up. But for whatever reason, maybe we did it like late in the season and then after Christmas we didn't want to watch it or something, but we never got around to finishing it. So I had only seen the first half of Elmo Saves Christmas until uh, recently till this week. And then I had never seen Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. I'm imagining you developing like a fan canon ending to Elmo Saves Christmas <laughs> before you saw the real canonical ending. Were you able to guess what was going to happen? I mean, in broad strokes, but the specifics I did not guess and I have opinions on, or, or at least reactions to, let's say. So okay, we, good. Uh, I'll be looking forward to, to talking about that. It's good when we have opinions. That's what the listeners like, I think. Could be. Yeah. So I first saw Elmo Saves Christmas back when it came out in 1996, when I was six years old. And it's received some frequent replay over the years. I never forgot it. And we're going to talk about why. I hadn't seen Christmas Eve on Sesame Street before. But I had seen, like, GIFs of it shared by the Muppet History Facebook page. And I'd been curious. And then, within the past week, I think, longtime Sesame Street cast member Bob McGrath, so one of the humans, passed away. And he's in both of these films prominently. And supposedly, Christmas Eve on Sesame Street was one of his favorite projects. Nice. 
So I wanted to pay some homage. Plus, as you said last week, we've been dancing around this one for a little while. It was on my 100 film favorites list. And so I'm ready to talk about it. Yeah, one other point of distinction on Christmas Eve on Sesame Street is that one of my favorite people I follow on Letterboxd is this user named Plupal Pop. And I mentioned him in the Emmett Otter Saves Christmas, to which this has some comparisons, because he had written a really nice five-star review of Emmett Otter Saves Christmas. And he's rated about 1,400 different movies on Letterboxd. He's only given 18 of those five stars. So that's, you know, close to 1%, or it's a little over 1%, not quite 2%. And one of those was Emma Daughter Saves Christmas. And another one of those was Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. And so he has a nice review of that one too. Wow, top marks. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking of Emmett Otter, too, because this one came out the next Christmas after Emmett Otter. Oh, okay. So Emmett Otter was 77, and this was 78. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, Sesame Street, it's got prominent placement of Muppet performers. So this special was directed by John Stone, and it's got a lot of the usual Sesame Street roster. If you remember it from when you were a kid, you probably know some of these names. Although this is very early. Sesame Street started in 1969, and this is basically the OG cast. People that I was not personally familiar with, some of them, having tuned in in the early 90s. And it, that extends even to like Muppet characters, too. Because you've got, you know, Big Bird and Oscar and Cookie Monster and Bert and Ernie. But I don't think we see Grover in this. Did we? Oh, good point. I I don't recall. Mm, They kind of ran together because I watched them consecutively. So I don't think so. Right. I don't think we did. Uh, Definitely no Elmo yet. He had not had his advent. Now, Brian, before we jump in here. Can we just very briefly talk about what our own relationships overall are to Sesame Street? Yeah, I think that makes sense. What do you got? So I watched Sesame Street a lot as a young kid, like preschool age. I watched a lot of this. So it's kind of memory hold in a way where I have a lot of like very fuzzy memories of it with like a small handful of specific memories that stick out. And I know that it was like very important and formative on me as a kid. Like it was one of the first media things that I clung to as, as a young person. And a couple of the things I distinctly remember is the count was really scary to me. He had some recurring thing, or maybe it was one bit from an episode that we had on tape. And I just watched that one episode a lot. I don't know actually what the song was, and I, I'm not even sure I would recognize it like if it was played for me, but there was one minor key song with the count that was really scary to me. I would have to run out of the room when that song came on. And I also had this, I, man, it may have been an audio cassette or it may have been a CD, I'm not sure. I guess that would have been like right around the time that CDs were starting to be a thing. But we had one... If like a a mix of Sesame Street songs are on, like we've done that a couple times with my daughters, I can always tell you if one was on that because I'll hear it, I'll be like, oh yeah, of course, I've heard this one a million times. 
Although I don't know if I could like recollect most of them. I mean, uh, C is for Cookie is on there and Rubber Ducky, You're the One is on there. Probably like most of the big name ones up until then were, were on there. But I have a lot of fondness for the music of Sesame Street. Cool. Well, my experience was that I watched it and I watched a lot of PBS when I was young, partially because we didn't have cable. So I was watching the, the PBS kids shows like a lot. Longtime listeners are familiar with my love for Wishbone, uh, but also stuff like Bill Nye the Science Guy and Kratz Creatures and all of that. And then I had a brother who was seven years younger than me, so I kept up even with the younger-aimed shows longer than one might expect. So I was still keeping tabs on Sesame Street. You know, it's a little more intellectually stimulating than Teletubbies, which came out around the same time as my brother. I like that. Came out as your brother. I guess your brother did quite literally come out. <laughs> yeah, by that I mean being born. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, same thing for me with Blue's Clues and a couple other shows from the era. Dora the Explorer, too. I remember some ambitious story arcs from around the 97-98 season when Slimy the Worm went to the moon and then he was, like, reporting from space for like a couple weeks and then he came back but uh, anyway this was pre my brother he wasn't around yet in 1996 but elmo was very big that year that was the christmas of the tickle me elmo where parents were fighting each other in the aisles oh nice yeah i remember that parodied in jingle all the way starring arnold schwarzenegger and you're right that Sesame Street has some bangers when it comes to the soundtrack. Quite a few good songs. And I remember that we had a CD called Sesame Street Platinum. And it was like all the biggest hits like you're talking about. And there are some songs that are a little bit spooky. The one that gets to me is Monster in the Mirror sung by Grover. Do you know that one? No, at least not off the top of my head. Okay, well has Grover talking about seeing a monster in the mirror, and it's kind of the same angle as monster at the end of this book, where, you know, a monster is like a menacing, scary thing, but actually the monster is Grover. Oh, interesting, yeah. But I've always wrestled with that a little bit. It has a good line. It says, If your mirror has a monster in it, do not shout. This kind of situation doesn't call for freaking out. But do nothing that you would not like to see him do for that monster in the mirror. He just might be you. Spooky. I think there's a lot of profundity to that quote. Yeah, I like it. Anyhow, would you like to dive into this first offering of the evening, Dan? Christmas Eve on Sesame Street? Sure. Okay, so I knew very little about this one going in. But I, I popped it on and... It's an hour special. The first 10 minutes of it or so are devoted to footage that seems to come from like a Sesame Street on ice show. So it's ice capades by these characters, except it's like lower quality puppet suits because they have to go over trained skaters. This was super striking and weird because, first of all, I forget, we talked about it at some point, but Muppets with feet just do not look right. They look odd. 
with legs specifically, I mean. And also, I don't know what it is, but in my head, most of the characters, most of the puppets are like three feet tall. But these were like eight feet tall or something. Right. Taller than a human because a human has to go inside them. And the one that I thought was noteworthy was there's a big bird skating around. And like in wide shots when he's skating, it's this cheapo big bird. And then at one point he like falls down and a girl helps him up and it cuts into a close up. And then suddenly it's the fancy big bird suit that we are familiar with. Mm. And then it like cuts out wide again and it's this weird simulacrum imitation big bird oh, i didn't notice the distinction i wasn't looking that closely i guess i really liked that segment i thought it was kind of like it had no words and it kind of told a story just through the ice skating which was nice but it also made me laugh because it starts out the score is like a slow minor key Feliz navidad and then like as it kind of gets more optimistic as the story goes along it turns into a major key and then bam in comes Jose Feliciano singing the lyrics. There's a there's an anecdote at, at my house with my wife where we, we went to a Christmas concert one time and there's this c- conductor who does this concert every year and he's just got like a very uh, grand and eloquent way of speaking, often beyond what the material requires. And the one that we always quote is the this band, it's like a, a symphonic band, played a rendition of uh, Feliz Navidad. And he he opened it by saying, now this is a song that's very meaningful this time of year, which like, no, it's not. It's just the whole thing is that it's like a vaguely Latin sounding thing of a dude singing Merry Christmas in Spanish over and over again. There's not it's not meaningful at all. So I was laughing. Extremely repetitive, but I did definitely dig this minor key rendition of it and it's so slow it took me a while to pick up what the tune was it's like what are they really playing sad Felice Navidad (laughs) it was so good I want to get the mp3 of it or something yeah although my my favorite performance of Felice Navidad is probably always going to be the one from the Pee Wee Christmas special where it's Charo and Conky the Robot playing oh yeah I got to revisit that for sure. Maybe that's what I'll watch with my daughters this Friday. We do movie nights most Fridays. We'll do Pee Wee or something. Oh, yeah. I recommend it. But then at the end of this ice skating bit, they start doing the whip, which is where everybody links hands and they spin around in a circle. Probably not as common post the age of, you know, bicycle helmets and consumer safety. But they they do the whip and they grab Oscar the Grouch, who, by the way, is walking around with legs, Muppet legs sticking out the bottom of his can like a barrel in an old timey cartoon. (laughs) And they grab Oscar and start spinning him around against his will. And it segues into the next act by them violently flinging him completely out of the skating rink. And he goes clattering down multiple flights of stairs and rolls out of the arena. It was pretty good. It does end with the punchline where he's like, oh, let's go do it again. You know, they're worried about him. Right. So he's okay. But yeah, I was laughing at this bit. Yeah. I was not expecting it. Struck a chord with the sense of humor that you had when you were the age that you were watching these. Mm -hmm. Which I suppose is, per your previous anecdote, 
much older than the typical uh, Sesame Street audience. Yeah. And this bit where he's falling down all the stairs, I felt was representative of like a generally edgier tone of this very early Sesame Street content. Like in a scene or two later, Oscar calls Big Bird stupid and then he just goes off on Big Bird cussing at him, except you don't hear it because a train is rumbling by. This surprised me. I was like, what? What is this? Yeah, they let Oscar fly his freak flag a little bit, which I can kind of respect, but not something you would see today. <laughs> Another thing I noticed is it very much like emphasized that they're in New York. There's this whole scene where they're on the subway and... I mean, I don't think you would ever, like, doubt that they were in New York City on Sesame Street. But just this whole sequence of them, like, getting around in the city is something you didn't see as much later. Yeah, good call. I didn't think about that, but you're right. It's definitely, like, we're in the Big Apple. Here we are on the, I don't know, what are the names of the trains? Whatever it is. Yeah, it's, like, very, very New York-y. Brian, I was wondering, do you have a favorite sesame street puppet character hmm or like a tier rating or anything like that man i should have prepared something like that favorite i think grover tends to be pretty funny and they put him in a lot of different situations but yes i, I like the skits with grover uh, bert and ernie consistently pretty funny uh what are what about you so when i was a kid I was really fond of Telly, but I can't even tell you anything about Telly, except that he's like that purplish color. So I don't know why I like Telly. Uh, obviously, Cookie Monster, reliable gag machine. And he gets some pretty funny ones in, in these two specials. And then Ernie was always a favorite of mine. I, I liked his his snicker, his laugh. I had a cousin who was uh, had a radio show. And when I was in preschool, he would call my house and pretend to be different Sesame Street characters, and uh, his Ernie was the best. He, he had a really good Ernie laugh. Yeah, I like that Bert and Ernie both have distinctive laughs. Bert goes, <laughs> and Ernie goes, <laughs> it's like a hissing laugh. Yeah. By the way, Bert and Ernie holding hands, skating around during the uh, ice skating. I would say it's, we'll, we'll get to it, but they're they're plotting this one, too. Definitely can see why there was speculation on Bird and Ernie. Yeah, you're right. And that's not going to be even the only couple that I'm going to speculate on in these offerings. And we have some long haul humans in the mix as well as the Muppets. I'm going to talk briefly about Telly when we get to Elmo. Or maybe I'll do it now. Telly, I think, was one of the characters who got emphasized in our era, like the 90s. But his character was that he was like a uh, worrywart. He was always worried about everything. Okay, interesting. He stars in a special that I'll talk about here soon. Gotcha. Oh, I guess the reason I brought it up at that moment is because in my adult years, whenever I've seen clips, I've been appreciating the presence of Oscar the Grouch. I'm glad that they have a grumpy guy. It's not just positivity all the time. Right. I just watched the 2022 stop motion Disney Plus special called Mickey Saves Christmas. And man, talk about a thing that's like 
corporate whitewashed, everybody's cheerful and helpful. I was missing some edge. Even Donald Duck is like real nice and helpful in that. It was like going from that to seeing Oscar the Grouch being a real grump was making me happy. Yeah, you got to have a grumpy bear in the mix. Exactly. But among the humans, we had people that I definitely recognized. There was Bob and Gordon and Susan and Maria. But there's one early days Sesame Street character who you don't hear about anymore. And this is David. And David has like big, crazy 70s mutton chops. He kind of looks like Mungo Jerry. And he was Maria's original boyfriend. And I looked it up. And the reason he stopped being on the show is that in the early 80s, he had a psychotic break and like went on a spree breaking into a bunch of houses. Oh, my God. And ended up institutionalized and they wrote him out of the show. He was replaced by Louise, who in short order married Maria and is going to show up again in Almost Saves Christmas. Another character is Mr. Hooper, the original owner of the store that everybody meets and hangs out at on Sesame Street. He died in 1982, and it's kind of a milestone in children's television history that when the actor died, they actually had him die on the show. Like, he didn't die with the cameras rolling, but they acknowledged that he was dead and kids weren't going to see him anymore. Oh, wow. This 1978 special is pretty episodic, but it's got a few subplots that are developed as it goes along. The main one being that Oscar teases Big Bird and he wonders aloud, how does Big Fat Santa get down the skinny little chimney? Santa, who is, to quote Oscar, built like a dump truck. I was like, man, not pulling his punches, Oscar. <laughs> what I thought was so funny about this storyline is that Big Bird and Oscar are both performed by Carol Spinney. And I think if you listen to the audio in isolation, like their voices aren't even too different. Hmm. But it's them talking about very different things. <laughs> It's always fun to imagine characters having conversations with themselves. Like on The Simpsons, there's a couple of voice actors who do a bunch of characters and oftentimes having characters with themselves, or excuse me, having conversations with themselves. Right. Like I believe Harry Shearer is both Mr. Burns and Smithers. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Or another case like that is um, Justin Roiland doing Rick and Morty. And just imagining them, you know, arguing with themselves in the booth is it always makes me laugh. <laughs> so now Big Bird is worried he's got to get to the bottom of how Santa gets down the chimney so the whole rest of the special he's interrogating people trying to get the answer and he like ropes Kermit into helping him out and Mr. Snuffleupagus into helping him out and so they're going around and asking like all the neighborhood kids how do you think Santa goes down the chimney yeah one thing I liked about this one that was a little different from Elmo Saves Christmas is that this felt more like a supercharged episode of Sesame Street where, like you said, it's episodic, but it's also got different types of segments. It's got like the kids talking and it's got different types of uh, little stories and skits going on. Yeah, you're right. It does feel like a more standard episode than what would come later. Then we have Bert and Ernie's arc, which is the gift of the Magi. 
so we've talked Gift of the Magi a little bit before. Actually, when we talked about Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, that was a lot like Gift of the Magi. So the Muppet team seems to have had Gift of the Magi on the mind in the late 70s. The specific angle here is that Bert has a paperclip collection that he gives up to get a soap dish to hold Ernie's rubber ducky. But Ernie gives up the rubber duck to get a cigar box to hold the paperclips. And they both go to pawn the stuff at Mr. Hooper's store. So Mr. Hooper is in possession of both of the treasured objects. But then when we finally get to the gift-giving scene and... Bert presents the dish and Ernie presents the cigar box and they have the brief moment of anguish. Mr. Hooper promptly arrives and gives them back their things to be contained in their containers. And so it's kind of a Hooper ex machina. <laughs> the sorrow doesn't have to linger. Did you have any thoughts on this arc, Dan? Yeah, I mean, it does kind of soft pedal the tragic outcome of gift of the magi which you know we kind of talked about we have mixed feelings about it's like it, it doesn't have an uplifting ending in its original form but i uh, just because i feel like it still kind of hit the point of it but still didn't let us feel too bad about it and you know M mr hooper he he's a wise man i think he, he he's seen his christmas specials before he knew what was going on and so he was able to uh, save the day yeah he seems like a nice guy. And then one other bit that happens, the prominent placement of Bob, which may be why he finds the special so endearing, is he plays a song called Keep Christmas With You on the piano for a bunch of kids. And this, as we said last time, is going to be a song reprised in Elmo Saves Christmas. But it's about holding the spirit of Christmas in your heart and trying to keep it all the year. When Christmas is over, saves from Christmas cheer, is what they say. And it's kind of understated here. It gets a more grand performance in Almost Saves Christmas. I thought the songs were pretty much all terrific, actually. Like, really excellent in, in this Christmas Eve one. Just really every song that came on, I was like, oh, wow, this is like a really lovely or kind of clever or something. And it's got... I think it's Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, yeah, um, with Bert and Ernie. Yeah, I liked the one at the beginning that was True Blue Miracle, uh huh. which I feel like I've heard in some version before, but I don't remember it having the same lyrics, so I don't know if they took an existing song and kind of molded it to what they needed. But yeah, there were some good musical numbers, but I'm really going to go in on the musical numbers in Elmo. But there, there were some good moments here. And in the Keep Christmas With You performance here in 1978, it's Bob together with Linda, who is a deaf woman that he is implied to have a relationship with. She was another uh, Sesame Street human over the decades who, who kept popping up. The arc with Big Bird trying to find out how Santa Claus goes down the chimney, builds to the climax when he, like, runs away. He doesn't tell anybody where he's going, and he goes up on the roof of an apartment building 
And his thought is that he's going to catch Santa in the act, basically stay up there all night and catch him when he tries to go down the chimney so he can figure out how that goes down. And all the grown-ups are worried and they're trying to find him and eventually they do. And they scold Oscar for being a troublemaker. Yeah, and he immediately has a joke about the Easter Bunny. Have you seen, you said you have seen My Neighbor Totoro, right? Yes, but it was a long time ago. So keeping it kind of spoiler free, the climax of My Neighbor Totoro has, similar to this, a character disappearing and the entire community becoming worried about that character. But in fact, like what was going on was that character just really needed some introspection, like to basically come up with the answers themselves to a challenging situation. I was thinking of my neighbor Totoro here at the end. Yeah, it didn't arrive at quite the moral that I was thinking that it would because like Gordon brings Big Bird into his apartment and it's all dressed up for Christmas. And he's basically just like, remember that there are people who love you, Big Bird. And that's what you need to keep in mind. That's what's really important. What I thought he would say is that, look, presents have been delivered, so it doesn't matter how Santa gets down the chimney. You just have to have faith that he can. And th that the moral should be basically have faith. That's where I thought we were leading, and it didn't quite get delivered in those words. But that's the climax that would make sense to me. Interesting, yeah. It, it kind of touches on that just a little bit. He has a moment where, well, look, it got delivered anyways. And then also it kind of ties back to the lyrics of True Blue Miracle, which talk about how it feels like a, a miracle, how beautiful a city is during Christmas. But the, what's really beautiful and what's really a miracle is how we as humans become kind and connected and grow together during the Christmas season. And so I thought this was kind of an understated parallel to that. It's like thinking about a different kind of miracle, you know, like a different Christmas magic miracle, mm -hmm. and then bringing it back to we're all together. That's what the real miracle is. Mm, yes, I like that a lot. I think you're right. So that is Christmas Eve on Sesame Street from 1978. I'm glad I got a chance to check it out. We'll be back with a rating here pretty soon. But are you ready, Dan, to talk about Elmo Saves Christmas? I just have one last question on Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. How often did Kermit appear on Sesame Street? Because he, he appears in Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. Yeah, he's in Elmo Saves Christmas, too. Wait, he is? <sighs> yes, Dan. Okay. I, that one did not register for me. He's then. the news reporter. He's the one who announces the transformation. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Good call. I guess my brain just didn't process that as being weird like it did when I watched Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. So he's a regular. That's not like an unusual thing. Yes. Ker Kermit is the bridge figure. He's the Henry Kissinger. He can exist in both Muppet universes, which actually I was considering bringing to the table the Muppet Family Christmas from the 1980s that had the Muppets and the Sesame Street cast and the Fraggle Rock cast all celebrating Christmas together. But I feel like we have to kind of build to that. So maybe next year. <laughs> Sounds good. But yeah, Kermit, a pretty frequent appearance on Sesame Street. Here in this old one, he's still 
actually Jim Henson. We had Jim Henson as Kermit and Ernie. So he, he died after Elmo Saves Christmas. No, he died in 1990. Gotcha. Okay. So by Elmo Saves Christmas, he's already played by Steve Whitmire, who took over the role. Okay. Steve Whitmire, probably most distinctively known for his performances as Rizzo the Rat. Mm. Okay. Okay. So now let's talk about Elmo Saves Christmas. And this for me is kind of the meat. It was good to explore something different with Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. But this is the one that I have like in my bones. <laughs> As I was watching, I was just repeatedly struck by how I basically had it memorized. Like there are lines, especially that really, I, I like call to mind when it's not Christmas. <laughs> And we'll we'll hit some examples of that when we get to them. But yeah, in the 90s, Elmo kind of like took over Sesame Street. He was the commercially viable figure and he just got such outsized prominence that towards the end of the 90s, they like replaced the last quarter of the show every day with the Elmo's World segment. And that was kind of when I was out. I thought that was that was too much. That was going too far. It's taken attention away from the established characters. The Urkelization of Elmo. Indeed. He's fonzing. <laughs> but in 1996, he was king. This was the Tickle Me Elmo Christmas, as I said. And so they did this special where he's right at the heart of everything. And... It's got a little bit of a Christmas Carol structure. We'll talk some more about that. Uh, when it opens, it's Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. And Elmo is like putting out the cookies for Santa. He goes through his community and you get to see a little bit of life on the street. What everybody's up to. And then he makes his way back to his house and he gets ready for bed but he's awakened in the night because Santa Claus is trapped in the chimney. And Elmo has to wake up and help pull Santa free. Oh, I also want to say that the very beginning of the special is a frame story. Because this tale is being told by Maya Angelou. Big pull. Who I think is like... It's like a very PBS-type guest star. Poet laureate Maya Angelou here. I just read I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings for the first time like three years ago. Very moving book. And so she's telling the story to some other prominent 90s Muppets. These being Zoe and Rosita and Telly. Oh, and Baby Bear who are hearing this story about how Elmo saved Christmas and then almost lost it again. Because, yes, Elmo frees Santa from the chimney. And as a reward, Santa offers him a magic snow globe, which will grant him three wishes. So Santa is very OP here. Santa is suddenly essentially a genie. I mean, it's this is really lampshading that Santa is a god. And like, even if you think about what Santa's role is in normal Santa circumstances, 
this one had me thinking like okay what what can santa do to improve the world that santa is not doing i have more thoughts on that as the the nature of some of the powers comes identified well you know Maybe this is a deist cosmology when it comes to Santa. He set things in motion and then stepped back. <laughs> Maybe I was thinking it's like uh, Harry Potter, where they have the statute of secrecy and there's like other rule. There's a whole ministry of magic and all that. Like there are very distinct and clear rules on what magic you can do. That's public facing, you know, so it's like you can't reshape destiny to Santa's will. It's like, no, that gets you thrown in Azkaban. Santa Azkaban. <laughs> yeah, well, Elmo's first wish is for a glass of water. <laughs> and I like this because Santa's jaw is like hanging open. He says, you have two wishes left. Don't wish them. Made me think of uh, Bedazzled because how he wastes the first wish on... An ice lolly or whatever, like something pointless with his very first wish. Oh, definitely. And then, of course, it ends up being a Faustian bargain to get those wishes. Mm hmm. But then the next day, Christmas morning, Elmo makes a more consequential wish because he wishes that it would be Christmas every day. And I don't know, Dan, if you've seen any other movies where. Somebody wishes for it to be Christmas every day. I know it happens in, what was the one? one a Mickey's Once Upon a Christmas. There's a segment where that happens. I think there's a couple other specials that have this. That's the one I've seen. Except on those, what they do is Groundhog Day, where it's a time loop, and the character ends up experiencing the same Christmas over and over, which I don't think really matches the spirit of that wish. I like what they do here, which is that they make December 26th Christmas again and December 27th Christmas again. And you just have to keep doing it as the calendar progresses. OK, I mean, I disagree. I, I like the the way that the Mickey Once Upon a Christmas does it because the individual who needs to learn the lesson still learns the lesson and still gets the point of like how if you have too much of a good thing, it ruins it. You know, it's special things need to be special. But having the same thing over and over isn't too much of a good thing. It's like having the same dose of the exact same thing over and over. Like monotony is not the same thing as overabundance. OK, but to them, it is a different thing each time because it's like, you know, you spend 10 days and the calendar says December 25th, but... To that person, I think it's the Huey, Dewey, and Louie in Once Upon a Christmas. To them, it's like 10 days, even though the calendar says it's one day. Right, but you get the same people saying the same things. I think the repetition wears on you in ways beyond the realization that you can't have Christmas every day. I think the pitfalls of time loops are different and just more varied than what we see delivered on here. I guess so. But that to me highlights just how completely ludicrous. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about it when we get to it, when we, we outline the rules here in a minute, because it does not make any goddamn sense to me. That's why I love it so much, Dan, <laughs> because we are going to get completely bleak and apocalyptic 
just because the news media tells us to. Because at first it seems that nothing has changed, but then reporter Kermit the Frog comes on breaking news. It's going to be Christmas again tomorrow. And everybody just blindly accepts it. They say, all right, we're doing it again tomorrow, December 26th. And so they all go out and they have to do their usual Christmas rituals, buying presents, cooking Christmas dinner, not returning to work. So here, let me show you how. No. Okay. I just said no to a thing like they literally every single person in the world just didn't say no. They're like, oh, well, damn, Kermit the Frog said it one time. So I guess that now we're doing this literally forever until somebody else wishes it. So like the nature of this wish isn't even to get one guy to say it. It's like to alter the brain chemistry of every person on Earth so that they buy into this premise. Genies are powerful beings, Dan. <laughs> I, I love this. I think this is great and I won't be swayed. Santa's a malevolent deity raining his wrath upon. <laughs> Elmo needs to learn. He needs to get Scrooged. Poor little uh, Elmo is like, oh man, I like it in presents. Wish I could do that every day. And Santa's like, you will know Armageddon, you little weakling. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's the premise. <laughs> that's what we're going to see expounded on for the next 40 minutes. And... It really does have this like five act structure in the mold of A Christmas Carol because we got this set up. Now he's made his wish and Santa shows up. And he says, you're going to learn your lesson, Elmo. Well, I guess Santa was. Yeah, Santa comes back. He appears on the street corner because now this wish is in motion and Santa bequeaths unto Elmo a young reindeer named Lightning. And because he's one of Santa's reindeer, he can fly really, really fast. Actually, this one may be like preternaturally fast. Faster than time. Even more than the others. He's faster than time. And so <laughs> this reindeer lightning can do what Superman does in the 1978 Superman movie, where he flies around the Earth so fast that he can time travel. It's like he outpaces the days. This to me, so okay, casually... It's like a supplemental thing to the story. It's like, oh, we have the wish. Oh, man, we got to experience this wish. That's the main story. Oh, coincidentally, here's a reindeer that can travel through time. It's kind of like in Spider-Man 2 where just they kind of toss aside. Oh, and I've created a sentient artificial intelligence to control my Doc Ock arms. And like nobody's like, oh, wow, this is going to reshape human society. Like, oh, yeah, OK, that, no questions, no further questions. He created a sentient AI. It's like for me, it's like, well, let's talk more about Lightning Bolt or whatever his name is. How can we how come he can travel through time? Can all the reindeer do this? Is he like is he extra special fast? Yeah, that's not really established, but it's important that he can travel through time because now we're basically going to get our three chapters of time travel a la the Christmas Carol ghosts. Because mm -hmm. first we get a stop when it is Christmas in springtime. Each of these chapters, we're going to check in with a few developing subplots. So the first one that I want to say is there's a song that I guess the Sesame Street 
characters sing every Christmas, where they have carolers going through the streets. And I love every version of this because it changes as the calendar advances. But their their standard lyrics go, Hang a star upon the tree, it's Christmas again. Candy canes for you and me, it's Christmas again. With jingle bells and pine tree smells and peace on earth to men. So wave the turkey leg on high, unwrap the gifts and pumpkin pie. With Santa Claus up in the sky, it's Christmas again. Very nice. But then, <laughs> as soon as it's announced, this is what you're going to do, sheeple. You're going to have Christmas again tomorrow. They return to the streets and they say, Hang the tinsel on the tree, it's Christmas again. Candy canes for you and me, it's Christmas again. Again, 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 again. They're loading toys on Santa's sleigh. Today is just like yesterday, because Christmas hasn't gone away. It's Christmas again. And we get to where it's springtime. And again, the carolers come out. Elmo and the time-traveling reindeer land in the tulip-filled town square. And the carolers in their Easter finery say, Cherry blossoms in the trees, it's Christmas again. Tell ladybugs and bumblebees, it's Christmas again. The birds of spring go caroling in every glade and glen. The snow has melted clean away, there's only grass for Santa's sleigh. And though it's very warm for May, it's Christmas again. You like this? I love the lyrics in this special. There are some great turns of phrase. I love the internal rhyme in the birds of spring go caroling in every Gladen Glen. Nice, yeah, that's that's solid. So we're just going to comment on some of the, the arcs that we see develop in each of these stops. So one is that Grover is a Christmas tree salesman. And because we keep having Christmases, people have to keep buying Christmas trees over and over. I, I think people would embrace artificial trees if they hadn't already. But some poor saps just have to keep buying live ones over and over again. And this is the case for Grover's perpetual customer. And I don't know how familiar listeners you are with Sesame Street, but in my era of the show, the 90s, there was this skit on all the time where Grover was usually a waiter and this guy would always come in for lunch and there would be comical misunderstandings where Grover would serve him the wrong thing and he'd get irate. And this guy is a bald gentleman with a big mustache and he's a Muppet and he's blue. On the Muppet wiki, he's referred to as Fat Blue because that is his body type. <laughs> it may be cruel, but that's his handle. That's how it works. Yeah. Interesting. So the nature of these subplots actually did have me thinking of time loops because it's not exactly a time loop where you have the like, it's going to go the same way unless the protagonist does something different. But it is kind of the same in that like the variations on each of the, the times we visit it, like reveal something about the nature 
of the like the fundamental questions of it and it, it like it has basically the same beats and the same the same structure but just like a, a slight variation in each one right well it's uh, the growing strain it's things coming apart at the seams because as the year goes along christmas trees start running out it's harder and harder to get a christmas tree and by the way, this is one of the lines that I think of all the time. Just whenever I pass a booth that is selling Christmas trees, I think of this little jingle that Grover sings in one of the bits where he goes, Christmas trees, get your Christmas trees right here, Christmas trees. So whenever I see a, a sign, Christmas trees for sale, that's what I think. <laughs> oh, one thing I want to comment on when Santa sends Elmo off on his mission he sings this sad song that's going to get reprised later where he says, Every day can't be Christmas. That wouldn't be such a treat. You can get tired of chocolate candy when that's all you eat. And I was wondering, Dan, do you have a favorite sad Christmas song? Favorite sad Christmas song? Um, I would need to think about, like actual favorite favorite um two that pop to mind are the original have yourself a merry christmas which i think is one of the great secular carols really i i'll, I'll i don't know maybe maybe some year we got to cover meet me in st louis which is where that song comes from yeah i haven't actually seen meet, meet me in st louis and in that one the song is so bleak it's like all the things are as negative as can be. It's a year from now, we all will be together. And it's basically like everything sucks now, but in a year, it'll all be okay. And then all subsequent covers try to like patch over how dark the song is. Like, until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow became hang a shining star upon the highest bough. I think it's like an inherently tainted song interesting well that's why i said the original i like that i mean i think it's poignant that the premise of the song now to be clear i haven't seen the movie so i can't connect it to what's happening in the plot but the premise that like christmas is a time when we check in on our lives and right now things are rough but i i hope that we'll get through it and come out on the other side and nonetheless i hope you still have a merry christmas almost as like a little ironic bow on it so that's one pick of mine. The other one I would go with is the Joni Mitchell song River is pretty great and pretty sad. So that's not both sides now, which gets sung in Love Actually. But there is actually a sad Christmas song by Joni Mitchell. That's River that, uh, you know, would have probably fit just as well in that spot in that movie. It's coming on Christmas and talks about how she wishes she could skate away. It's another kind of poignant thing for me where it's like everybody's feeling festive, but she, she just can't feel it. She's too sad about other things. And so she wants to skate away on a frozen river, uh, which I think is a lovely image. But those are two that pop to mind. I mean, again, not necessarily saying they're my favorites, but what, do you have a distinct pick here? Is it this one? Oh, there's quite a few good ones. I like this one, but like all alone in the world from Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol mm. is quite good. Same old Lang sign, which they play on the radio occasionally. 
Oh, if you count Auld Lang Syne, I mean, I've talked about my love of that for sure. No, 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 not not regular Auld Lang Syne, same Auld Lang Syne. Oh, okay. That's the one with the saxophone solo. This, and when I turned to make my way back home, the snow turned into rain. Are you familiar? I'm going to have to look it up because it's not coming to mind. You got to cue this one up. I'm sure you've heard it at some point. But it is possible to have a Christmas song that's too sad, which is the case of Christmas Shoes. <laughs> we don't need a song on the radio all the time about mothers are literally dying of cancer here on Christmas. I agree. Like, you don't need to give that airtime. It used to be back in the day. It was like they played that all the time. It's like, no, too much, too far. This is not the Christmas spirit. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Anyhow, though, a couple other of these subplots we're going to check in on from time to time. One is Maria and Luis, who are a couple now with a daughter. They are not working their jobs at the fix-it shop because this is like the veil. This is like the very tail end of the era when you could get appliances repaired, which, you know, with planned obsolescence is now no longer the economically feasible thing to do. It's like, you just get a new one. You don't take it to the fix-it shop. But because it's Christmas and you don't work on Christmas, even though obviously some people do work on Christmas, the work is piling up. There's just a growing mountain of broken appliances. The one that got me is you see the, uh, the big pile of toasters. Oh, wait, no, is that a different thing? That's Yeah, that's out front of their shop. Okay, so that had me thinking of The Office. One of my all-time favorite clips. There's not even like I don't. There's no reason it's a favorite. I'm sure you know what I'm talking going to talk about here. It's when uh, Stanley, played by Leslie David Baker, uh, has a little monologue after Pam and Roy call off their wedding. He he says, "I got them a toaster. They called off the wedding and gave the toaster back to me. I tried to return the toaster to the store, and they said they no longer sold that kind of toaster." So now my house has got two toasters. <laughs> I was thinking of that when there was a pile of toasters out front. Yeah, that's one of my favorite Stanley moments, at the very least. Yeah. Along with the episode where he bonds with Michael over how much they love Pretzel Day. That's a great one, too. Uh, another arc that I feel like you might have enjoyed, Dan, is the only thing on TV on Christmas on Sesame Street is It's a Wonderful Life. And they keep cutting back to it on the TV at moments that kind of comment cleverly on the action going on in the special. Like when it's first announced it's going to be Christmas every day, it cuts to Jimmy Stewart. He says, this is a very interesting situation. <laughs> good Jimmy Stewart. Not as good as Teddy. Teddy does a fantastic Jimmy Stewart. Maybe we have to have him on sometime soon. Uh, but... You are pretty familiar with It's a Wonderful Life. Is this something you enjoyed, Dan? Oh, yeah. I really loved it. First of all, it's cool that they could include it because it's public domain. Right. Or at least I think at this time it was considered public domain, which was the case for a long time. And some will say it's the reason it's so well known today is because it got yeah so much constant television replay that it could be a punchline like this. Oh, that's the only thing you can watch. Uh, but I think... More recently, the copyright has been, like, reclaimed by someone, which is pretty much the only case I've heard of that happening. Huh. But 
I feel like that is why they were able to use it so much. So yeah, this really struck me. I have a couple of thoughts on this, but the one that I'll just say now is that you mentioned that you you found the story kind of paralleling a Christmas carol, and I definitely see that. It's like it kind of replicates that the way that the tone gradually changes and the num and the the pace of the the timing of the different chapters. But it also definitely had me thinking of It's a Wonderful Life, um, the way, particularly in what we're going to get to here towards the end, how like it's just like this dark world, uh, the same way you have Pottersville or whatever it's called in It's a Wonderful Life when he goes back in time. And I think they there was also a handful of moments that very much made me think of It's a Wonderful Life. So I think both of those, it, Christmas Carol and it's a Wonderful Life, which I will say are even spiritually linked together. Like, I think It's a Wonderful Life had the writer that had, had probably read A Christmas Carol, too. But in the same vintage, I would say. Sure. We've talked about that a bit, that in It's a Wonderful Life, the message is kind of an inversion of Christmas Carol, where it's a character who thinks they're no good. They're too down on themselves. And then they come to learn their value which is the opposite of what happens to Scrooge. Mm -hmm. Another subplot here of Elmo Saves Christmas, we have Snuffleupagus is going to visit his family in Cincinnati. So he's leaving. And this has broken Big Bird's heart. <laughs> that they're going to be apart for one day. Which, of course, is, it turns out, not going to be just one day, because in this dystopian hell realm, people who leave for Christmas, once it's Christmas forever, are gone forever. This is the one where I was like, okay, this is stupid as hell. It's like all the trains and stuff stopped agreeing to, to go because it was Christmas. Snuffleupagus, who had been planned to be there for one day, isn't like, well, I was here for one day, so I'm going to go back now. Like... They like, OK, you can choose to open up your store and repair things like those are things within your control. I guess not in this world where everything's controlled by Santa's magic. <laughs> but even then, we're going to get there. Santa gets impacted by it, too. So Santa has like determined his own fate as well. Yes. So <laughs> I want to linger on Snuffy for a moment and we'll we'll come back to it, too. But Yeah. So even mail is not being sent because no mail on Christmas. So Big Bird is just being emotionally torn asunder that he has to be parted from Snuffy. And this is one that over the years, it's like, okay, there's something going on here. Like, they're a little more than friends, I think. And this is a trope that... I mean, Dan has commented on it many times as the series goes along, this, this podcast that we've done here together, that it's kind of a meme. It's like if two characters of the same gender spend a lot of time together, hmm, let's speculate, which is something that I think you can go too far with. Like, I don't think the fact that Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble work together and are next door neighbors makes them gay lovers or like Pooh and Piglet or SpongeBob and Patrick. It's like, you know, Bert and Ernie, okay, well, they literally, like, sleep in twin beds. It's like, okay, maybe there's something there. But then in this case, maybe there's something there, <laughs> you know? Yeah, definitely. There's, like, a lot of nuzzling. 
so that brings me to I've never I mean I have thought a little bit about it. Both Snuffy and Big Bird are male. Is that pretty clearly established? Yes. Okay. It's cuz Snuffy's got some eyelashes going and I always thought there was something effeminate about Big Bird. Yeah, I mean I there are cases like that where I've wondered over the years like Rabbit on Winnie the Pooh. I I used to think Rabbit was a girl. Interesting. Not the case. That's neither here nor there. We're going to press on, but just know that this like yearning for Snuffleupagus is Big Bird's plot here. And yeah, we we also do see this situation wearing on Santa and the elves because they got to go out and do their big annual trip, except they got to do it every night. <laughs> and when they find out about this, there's a part that always makes me laugh. When th- this big alarm comes up in elf headquarters and they say, the Christmasometer is bleeping. <laughs> so I think of that from time to time. And an angry elf goes into Sandy and says, did you give somebody three wishes again? It makes me want to know the other stories where Santa has done this. What's the backstory here? The Christmasometer is bleeping. You could say that's happening right now. As we yeah. like, order our presents and stuff for the year. Exactly. Whenever you're in the thick of it, Christmas levels are high. <laughs> Alarmingly so. But now, as I said, we're in springtime. And one of the things that Elmo and Lightning the Reindeer witness is the Easter Bunny. Now forced to shill his Easter eggs on the street corner as novel Christmas presents. And the Easter Bunny is played by Harvey Fierstein. Which, do you have any strong feelings on Harvey Fierstein, Dan? Well, he's got that really distinct gravelly voice. I've always known him as like a general Broadway type guy. Mm -hmm. I don't know where I got that impression. I looked it up as I was watching this, so he has written some stuff and he's appeared in some stuff. Like he wrote the book for the stage adaptation of Newsies and he wrote the book for Kinky Boots. And he also is a voice in Mulan, which probably is the thing I know him best from. Right. So all of that is true. Definitely established as a Broadway presence. And I've always wondered how, how do you become a professional singer when you have that voice? I don't know. Yeah, it's really, I don't know. It's wild. But uh, yeah, I think his best performance is as Yao in Mulan because it kind of makes sense to me that a gruff soldier would have a voice like that. Right. Uh, But I think his performance here is really funny because the Easter Bunny sings a song about how you should buy your friend an Easter egg for Christmas. If you'll humor me, he just, he sings, give your friend an Easter egg for Christmas. Easter eggs are useful as can be. Take your Christmas money to your local bunny and you can lay an egg beneath the Christmas tree. Easter eggs are no longer just for Easter. Now that we got Christmas every day, it's the universal gift. So give a pal a lift and buy a Christmas Easter egg today. Just very raucous, fast-paced tune. It really seems like a Tin Pan Alley vaudeville song. I, I like it quite a bit, but... They move on. Elmo hops in the sleigh. They fly through time. And then it's summer. It's Christmas on the 4th of July. And the characters come out, the carolers, and they sing, Happy Independence Day. It's Christmas again. 
Let the marching music play its Christmas again. Go ring the bells and sing the wells to tell the Minutemen. The stars and stripes are waving high with fireworks up in the sky. And on this fourth day of July, it's Christmas again. These always get me. I I dig these. You like that it's got like a a motif that we come back to. Isn't Doesn't Sondheim do that? Where like you hit things in a different way, but with like the same tune? I think so. Yeah. And now things are really starting to show the cracks in civilization. Like the Christmas trees are going extinct. Yeah, the mountain of toasters. Big Bird finally decides to call Snuffy on the phone. Which, why hasn't he done this yet? <laughs> it's like 200 days in. Long distance relationship 101. Yeah, also, Snuffy doesn't pick up the phone. Why? What is he doing? I wonder if maybe Snuffy is tired of Big Bird's clinginess. Mmm, and that's why Snuffy went. He's like, I just need a break from you. You need to chill out a little bit, Big Bird. Yeah, Big Bird's smothering him. I wonder if... Snuffy is having an affair, a, a, a side relationship, <laughs> side piece in exactly. wherever town that he's visiting. He's down in Brazil with the alternate Big Bird. He's a parrot. <laughs> and so Elmo is maybe starting to see that this isn't the perfect world he imagined when he wished for Christmas every day. But he thinks, you know what? If we go forward to when it's really Christmas, December 25th, We'll see people getting in the spirit again. And so they warp, you know, another five months into the future. And here we are on Christmas number 365 or 366. And society has collapsed. It's Pottersville, like you said. Or Hell Valley and Back to the Future too. <laughs> yeah, just urban decay everywhere. And the carolers come out. But they can't sing anymore. They've lost their voices. Again, you have control of the things you do. You could choose to stop singing if it's like physically harming your body. Also, is the doctor's office open? So are people getting sick and stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it must be that they aren't open because nobody works on Christmas, Dan. That's the way this world works. <laughs> I guess so. So yeah, no fire department, no police frankly impressive that the infrastructure of society has persisted to like there, there's still electricity and working plumbing and stuff <laughs> but of course the main concern is that you can't watch anything beside it's a wonderful life right yeah everybody's sick of christmas at this point and just despairing the fix-it shop is all boarded over because they've finally accepted that they can never return to work <laughs> Elmo has seen the error of his ways so I will commend him on his bravery that he walks out into the town square and takes responsibility for this apocalypse <laughs> he says everybody this was my doing and he says it's okay though because I have a third wish and I'm going to wish for things to be back to normal but the magical snow glove slips through his fingers and shatters on the sidewalk before the wish can be granted. And nobody's mad about it. Like, ah. No, they, they just are very sad. And Louise says, it's Christmas. 
forever. <laughs> Which is my favorite line in this entire thing. I'm never going to not laugh at that line. Just his com yeah. completely defeated delivery. <laughs> and so this could be where things end. The, the world could just be doomed. But then Elmo remembers that he is traveling with a reindeer capable of flying faster than time. So they reason if he could fly forward in time, he could fly back, which I don't know about the physics of that. I don't know if that tracks, but that's what they decide they're going to do is fly back to the previous Christmas Eve. And so when they let Santa out of the chimney this time around, Elmo is not going to wish for the snow globe. He's not going to choose that. He's going to choose one of the other gifts that Santa offers him as a choice. And weirdly, Santa remembers everything that happened. Santa remembers that this, this time traveling has occurred and everything he experienced during it. So Santa really is a god, I guess. I have a, I have a theory. You ready for my theory? I'm ready. Okay, so first wish. All right, first wish is a glass of water. And he drinks the water. And then he wishes for, for Christmas to happen every day. But that first wish was generated by Santa's magic. So my theory is that why do we keep seeing It's a Wonderful Life? Why does the movie go out of its way? Well, yeah, there's some parallels there to the story. But what's the, the thing that happens? It's that he has this vision of an alternate reality that is, in fact, an instantaneous vision in his head. That time didn't really pass. He didn't really go to an alternate world where Pottersville was real. He just had a vision of it because he instantly is back where he was as soon as like he, he's gone through the experience of seeing what he needed to see in Pottersville. Well, maybe what happened is when he had that sip of water, Santa used his magic to make him experience what life would be like if he had Christmas every single day. Okay. So none of that actually happened. That was just a vision in Elmo's head. In that sense, it's even more like Christmas Carol then. Because it, it is really like he, he wakes up in his bed. He's got his second chance. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, Santa makes multiple references to things that happened during this this vision or this adventure, whatever it was. Like, oh, I man, I almost retired. And he has, like, examples of the messed up toys that the tired elves started making in their, like, factory mishaps. But yeah, now Elmo sets things right and saves Christmas by just not messing it up in the first place. So, thanks, Elmo. And it's kind of a clever double meaning because they joke he saved Christmas by getting Santa out from the chimney in the first place. But also he saved Christmas because... He wished it back to normalcy at the end. Mm -hmm. But also he saved the spirit of Christmas by keeping it with him, Dan. Oh. And the whole ensemble comes together here on Christmas Day and they reprise Keep Christmas With You from the special 18 years earlier, Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. And I think it it just really matches the moral here of, of the spirit of this special where you don't need to have it be Christmas every day for you to remember and treasure 
the feelings that you have on Christmas. Also, this viewing, I was trying to wrap my head around the fact that, sure, there's 18 years between Christmas Eve on Sesame Street and Elmo Saves Christmas, but it's been 26 years since Elmo Saves Christmas. Wow. It's like 1990 is closer to the JFK shooting than it is today. There's other ones like that. Like, I don't know how far back you have to go until it's closer to the Civil War than it is today. Stuff. It's just like really weird how our perception of what the modern era is kind of flattens. Right. Or one that gets me is that Julius Caesar and Cleopatra lived closer to today than the building of the pyramids was to them. Wow. And yeah, that's Almost Saves Christmas from 1996, Dan. I, I'm glad you could finally experience it, take the journey or the vision or whatever it was, this hellish mind trip that Elmo embarks on. Definitely something, something out there. Yeah. Something special. Yeah. One, one thing I liked in the, the last one, there, there's a few more kind of specific plot points I wanted to talk through too. And I'm sure you have a couple. Okay. Oh, please do. So one is in the, the last, I think it's the, the one, the second Christmas. So after they've gone through a year of Christmas every day, uh, they talk about doing something and someone, I think it's big bird. I'm not a hundred percent sure says, I'm going to have to take a snow check on that. And I like this idea that the upheaval in society has also resulted in Christmas and winter ideas suffusing language. So it's like now everything happens in terms of Christmas. <laughs> I had to take a snow check on that. That's a great idea. Yeah. That, I mean, I think it would become the basis of your, your discussion, your civilization. If it persisted long enough, it's almost like the pandemic. I mean, think about that. Oh, man. Think about how everybody's life was upended. Wow. Okay. You're blowing my mind. Elmo saves Christmas as a pandemic parable. Now I got to go rewatch it through that lens. <laughs> people are like, at the beginning, people are making banana bread and like, all right, this is all right. Getting to stay home every single day. And then after a year of it, they're like suffering deep depression and the collapse of society and our economy. I may have even made that parallel in a past Christmas episode where I name dropped it. We'll, we'll have to go to the tape, but it's possible. Another one I wanted to talk about is we talked a little bit about Big Bird's yearning for Snuffy and the letters that don't get delivered. And this to me was like the most poignant little thing, how he's writing these letters every day, the same message every single day. And it's letters to no one. It made me think of a few things. Uh, one is, did you ever read the short story Bartleby? No. Who wrote that one? Melville. So he wrote it when he was going through depression. Oh, Bartleby the Scrivener. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I've heard of it. I haven't read it. So he wrote it when he was in a depression about, I can't remember if it was after Moby Dick came out or as he was writing Moby Dick, but it's about this guy, Bartleby, who initially is like very well beloved in this office and very gradually kind of goes off the rails and he keeps saying, I would prefer not to. And it goes to some wild extremes, but we learn is almost like an aside at the end that he worked in the dead letter office. So I don't know if this is a real office or not, but like a, a place in the post office where letters that cannot be delivered nor returned end up. So these are letters to no one. And he spent his life 
parsing through these great ideas and these these great expressions that were just lost to the sands of time, despite being meaningful to people. And I always clung to that image, uh, even more so than the rest of that story. I thought that was a powerful image. And that's kind of what's happening here. That's interesting. That's got me thinking of an article I sent you just earlier today, a thought piece about how one of the things Elon Musk says he might do now that he's in charge of Twitter is unload all the accounts that haven't tweeted in a long time. Mm -hmm. And the writer of this article just dove through a bunch of accounts that haven't posted since like 2009 and maybe only ever posted like two tweets and they didn't get any engagement. And so they stopped and just expounding thoughts about that. Like, you know, did they stop because they were just crushed that nobody responded to them or, or maybe they just found something better to do with their lives that Twitter wasn't for them. Some interesting things. We'll drop it in the discord as we say so often these days, which I really have enjoyed. I've, I've liked that a few new people have joined and there does seem to be some discourse on the discord. There you go. Oh, it never occurred to me that the, that was the etymology of discord. I don't know why that didn't occur to me. I don't think it actually is. Discord is the opposite of harmony. So I don't know what uh, the etymology of discourse is, but I think it's different. Hmm. Yeah, that I was thinking of that article too. Weirdly poignant article. Yeah. A couple things that I really like about this one, some good things, if you will. I find a lot of the dialogue genuinely funny. Like, I, I laugh pretty frequently in this, and I think it holds up just the irate elves and the irate Christmas tree customer and just everybody mindlessly accepting that this is the way the world is going to work now. One line that made me laugh really hard is in the framing story at the beginning. Telly says if he had a wish, he would wish I'd wish for a pogo stick with chrome handles and world peace. Just kind of tacked on there at the end. The timing of that made me laugh pretty hard. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's funny. And I mean, I think the lyrics are pretty sharp in, in some of these. They are, you know, were thought through. So something that Lightning the Reindeer says that years later I learned was a reference to something is he asks Santa, like, if he can pull the sleigh or something. And he says, please, Santa, please, Santa, 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 please which is a reference to Spike Lee's character, Mars Blackman. And Mars Blackman has the catchphrase, please, baby, please, baby, 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 please. Hmm. So years and years later, I took a college course on Spike Lee's movies and Mars Blackman shows up in a couple. And he even had like a Nike commercial series where he was on TV, but he would say that. Okay. I just, there's no other time on the podcast when I'm going to get to bring this up. So now is the time. <laughs> no, plunge the depths. Yeah. And and then I'll just say again that I really love how like unexpectedly grim this gets. Like I would not expect an Elmo special to get as nigh apocalyptic as this one does. Yeah, it really does remind me of Christmas Carol in that regard. And also, of course, It's a Wonderful Life where... Despite being a kids-oriented thing, it goes 
dark at the end to make you realize the good things. What's really important, the message we should be taking away. But the only way that we can properly appreciate that is to realize what happens if that weren't there in, in various situations, whether it's the generosity of Scrooge or in the case of It's a Wonderful Life, if he had never been born or here, what's lost if we don't keep special things like Christmas special. You need to do things in moderation. I think it's the Count says, when every day is Christmas, Christmas is no longer special. It's like the Incredibles, the syndrome viewpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Mine's went to the same place there. Yeah. And did you have any other things to comment on, Dan? Good things, not so good things? Yeah, my, my other idea here. So first of all, already a game changer that lightning can go forward in time. Now he can go backwards in time, which you said, I'm not sure of the physics of this. Let me clarify that there are no physics of this. We've gone even further into Santa is God territory that his his reindeer can go backwards in time by flying fast. I guess he's got to go faster than the speed of light to do that. Like, not only is that something that's impossible, that but like our entire system of science is based on the, the concept that one cannot go faster than the speed of light. And it, it had me thinking that you could do a spinoff of this with Elmo and lightning flying to different time periods and solving problems. So like a, a kids oriented Sesame Street spinoff version of Doctor Who. <laughs> I kind of like that. It's like, oh, turns out uh, in ancient Egypt, the pharaoh is uh, hoarding all the food and not letting the servants eat their fair share. Well, Lightning, you know what to do. Use your magic to fly back to ancient Egypt so we can teach this pharaoh a lesson. I would watch it. In my research for this, I found out there's another early Sesame Street special called Don't Eat the Pictures, where everybody spends the night at the New York Museum of Art. And I would like to see what they have to say about various famous painters and things. I think it could be interesting. Yeah, that would be fun to look up. For me, though, the one major thing missing from this special... I wish it was like 10 minutes longer and we got an act where it's Christmas on Halloween. Oh, like the high school musical where there there's space for a fourth one that would have gone between two and three, but Halloween themed. So you're, that's exactly what it'd be here between Christmas two and Christmas three, I guess. Exactly. But we, we can only imagine what that would have been. I, I like... Yeah, just picturing a grungy Halloween Christmas that's almost apocalyptic, but not yet. It would break the mold of mirroring Christmas Carol quite as much, but I think it, it could have been cool. We, it could at least be like a deleted scene on a DVD if it was ever extant. So, Dan, are you ready to declare whether these two specials we watched today are good? Yes, I have my, my ratings penciled in. Good. Let's start with Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. So Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Toward to Good, which is an eight out of eight. I found this to be extremely winning. Like, really, I was touched and swept away multiple times during this it doesn't have quite as audacious a story and it's very episodic as compared to Elmo Saves Christmas. 
but it was just so polished. I thought all the writing was sharp and the music was lovely. And I just liked that, as you said, it had some edge and some spunk to it that made me laugh multiple times. And I can really see why it's like a type of special that you'd revisit year after year. It's just got a lot of like really special segments in it. So I'm going to give this one a very good. It, it really did it for me. And I would love to watch this with my kids at some point. I can see how it's like right as they were really in their their early kind of peak where just everything was kind of kicking and things hadn't quite settled into like a formula with the characters. It was like, I don't know, it just it just felt like they were still making the most out of kind of figuring out the way that each of their characters work to some extent. It just felt fresh to me. So that's what is it? Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. So, Brian, I gave it a six. Very good. What about you? Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. So for me, I'm just a hair lower because it is quite episodic. Although you're right, that kind of matches the structure of a typical Sesame Street episode. Like, you know, it's it's a multimedia experience. It's almost like a variety show. Uh, so this has that spirit. And it's a little different than what I've seen Sesame Street do before. It's it's a slightly different cast of characters than I was used to. Uh, but of course, you got a few of the usual long haulers, the OG humans and Muppets. I like it overall. I'm going to give it a five out of eight, a pretty high five. I do like some of the music. And I liked when they were on the subway because I hadn't seen that before. Just all this big group of characters really giving the impression that they're moving from place to place rather than just all on one set. So that was kind of cool. I'm glad I got to watch it. And now, Dan, what about Elmo Saves Christmas? So Elmo Saves Christmas. Um, I'm actually have them pretty much in the same realm for kind of different reasons, but I really got hung up on how deranged and nonsensical this premise was like it really pulled me out of it. I was like, just don't do that thing. You control what that thing is. You do that thing. It doesn't make sense that you say it's Christmas. Like, I know that you kind of have to sweep away the uh, suspension of disbelief at some point. It's just like, you got to accept it for what it is. At least on this watch through, I was not able to do that. And every single thing that happened, mm -hmm. I was like yelling at the screen. So I'm right on the edge between a five and a six, a good and a very good, because I, I did enjoy myself. And it is kind of fun to talk through the absurdity of everything and and just how far out there it goes but in terms of like it actually conveying in a way that it wanted to like more of my enjoyment came from like the kind of outer limits weirdness of it than the message itself that its objective itself i guess i'm gonna give it a high five that is a good I did like it, and I feel bad not being quite as high on it as you, but but that was my, my reaction watching through it this time. It certainly was very fun to talk about as well, and that, that raised it in my esteem a little bit too, because I did get quite a kick out of thinking about it and talking through it with you, Brian. It's okay, Dan. That's what we're here for, is to be honest with our ratings. And for me, I was going to try to be objective and maybe give it a six, a very good uh, this one, though, I think is squarely in seven territory for me. Exceptionally good. I love how wacky the premise is. And I chalk it up to genie magic, essentially, Dan. Okay. Uh, and I know the one that in Disney's Aladdin, he's got, he's more hung up on like 
manipulating the way people act. But I don't see any reason why you gotta be. If it's magic, you can use people as pawns. Okay. <laughs> if that's how you would operate. I just love, I love Louise saying, it's Christmas forever. <laughs> and we see Western civilization, at least, collapse. You know, I want to see what's going on in China and the Middle East, where they're not held to the Christian calendar. Oh, interesting. Like, is China the international superpower now because everyone didn't just abruptly stop working? All right, fan theory then. Pretty much every culture has some sort of winter solstice celebration. So maybe they all have to relive that celebration. It's like, whatever that time period would be, they're stuck on the same thing too. It's like a record scratching wherever you are in society. Ramadan every day. It's Ramadan forever. <laughs> how, how big would your candle need to be to have 365 candles on it for Hanukkah? Your menorah. Oh, man. Fire hazard. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a universe that's rife for fan fiction. Yeah. The further adventures of Elmo saves Christmas. But... Since we've been talking about this, another Sesame Street special from around this time that I might have to queue up before long is one called Sesame Street Celebrates Around the World from 1993, and it is a New Year's Eve special, and it has segments where we get to visit other countries and we see the local production of sesame street in that country which is really cool oh wow not something that gets talked about too much but you see like the arabic sesame street and the german sesame street and the israeli sesame street and this was like again 1993 and so they go to lilyhammer in norway which had the winter olympics then and so we get this whole Norwegian segment, which I don't think anybody has paid that much attention to Lilyhammer Norway since then, probably before or since. But I guess that's the way the Olympics tend to work. You know, did we ever hear about Sochi, Russia before? That's a good point. I, I don't think so. Yeah, it's very much a time capsule. And the Israeli New Year's song is a is a cranker. So we might have to, in a week or two, check that one out. Viewers, we're going to turn you loose here pretty soon. Thanks for dallying with us a while. I hope you do get the chance to check out some of these if we've piqued your interest. But Dan, what have you got coming up next for us here on The Goods? So Brian, what I'm going to have us watch next week, I, I really thought long and hard about, do I just want to pull the trigger and do It's a Wonderful Life? I do think we should talk about it at some point, maybe next year. The reason I decided not to pick it is just because I don't want to watch it this early in the Christmas season. We're going to record about a week before Christmas, and I like it to be right up on Christmas. So maybe next year, or maybe I'll do it right after Christmas. I don't know. But what I am going to pick is a movie that I have a complicated relationship with, and that is the 2019 film Let It Snow, a Netflix original film that is based off of a young adult book. 
So this would be an extension of our Young Adult Adaptation Month that we did like a year ago. I don't even remember exactly when we did that. But Let It Snow from 2019, I think it will connect to things we've talked about in lots of little ways. I don't think we'll have quite as much a rabbit hole as we did this week, but we'll definitely have some thoughts on some of the things that happen here. And Brian, my challenge to you is to think about what are some stories, whether it's books or movies or TV shows that you come back to again and again for comfort. So with regularity and the the ritual of revisiting that thing is something that's important to you because I have a connection to this one. It's not this movie specifically. It's it's a portion of the, the book it's based on. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So that will be kind of the theme, the lens through which we discuss Let It Snow next week. Okay, I'm ready. I'm curious. I don't really know anything about this one. Looking forward to checking it out and joining you again here on the pod, as I hope you do, listeners. Hope you're having a good holiday season and that you check in with us again here on The Goods. Thank you.